<laughs> hey, MC. What's up, bro? <laughs> Not much. I, you know what? I'm excited that this is, you know, we've been doing this for about two years now, and this is our first Halloween episode. Uh, it's definitely our first episode that we're gearing toward Halloween. So this is our first scary movie. Today we're going to be going over 13 ghosts. And uh, just so everybody is aware, we are going to spoil the ending of this movie. And we will curse. It's not just throwaway curses. It's it's pretty fucking meaningful when we do. <laughs> Enjoy the show. My name is Dennis Rafkin. You're Dennis Rafkin? Who's Dennis Rafkin? My office warned me about this guy. No, it's gonna sound completely whacked, all right? But just, just stay with me. I used to hunt, displace spiritual energies with your uncle. I'm sorry? Uh, uh, PK agents. Revenants, uh, 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 like wraiths. Wraiths, do you have any idea what I'm talking about? Uh, <laughs> that's okay, that's okay. I'll, I'll do this the easy way. Ghosts. Arthur, I used to... I used to hunt ghosts with your uncle Cyrus. Goats? Ghosts! Ghosts, goddammit! Listen to me! Imagine if you were Tony Shaloub. Go ahead, just imagine it. Now imagine that your daughter's Shannon Elizabeth, and your son is some kid, your maid is Rod Digga, and all of a sudden you inherit a giant glass house, which just happens to be filled with a dozen ghosts. A giant gear-centered machine somewhere in either the basement or the living room, we're not sure. And a bunch of trap doors that are designed to lock you inside so that somehow you can open the portal of hell. Yeah, just go ahead and imagine that. Go ahead, imagine that. Now, if you've imagined that correctly, you're ready to talk about the movie 13 Ghosts. Spro, how are you? I'm ready to talk about the movie 13 Ghosts. This movie 13 Ghosts came out in 2001, and I didn't know this until last night. It's a remake. Yeah, the 13 Ghosts movie in 1960. Which I had no idea even existed. And before we get into our wheel of poetry, one of the most interesting things that I found out, and you can tell me if you read this too, was that the original 13 Ghosts was not in 3D, but moviegoers saw it with a special pair of glasses that I guess when you closed one eye, you could actually see the ghosts on the screen. If you opened the other eye, you couldn't see them. I don't know if you'd call it 3D or I don't even, I have, I have no idea. I've never even imagined that technology. I imagine it was pretty annoying to have to like wink and wink and wink and wink back and forth. It was weird. Like, I'm glad that you looked into it a little bit more because I couldn't really figure out how those glasses work. Apparently, this was the jam in 1960 or whenever that was released and that was the gimmick and i have to say like i'm intrigued to see the 1961 now even without the glasses only to see how it compares so before we begin dissecting this wonderfully demonic movie we have a tradition on second chance cinema that we call the wheel of poetry and the wheel of poetry speaking of technology is a device similar to the device in the center of the 13 ghosts house that rotates and does not open the eye to hell, but does land on one of five different styles of poetry. We have haikus, we have limericks, we have ABAB rhymes, we have song parodies, and we have toasts slash roasts. Whichever one of those it lands on, Spro and I, and if we were to have a guest, would be destined to write while we listen to the trailer for this movie. This tradition dates back two years. I think between Spro and I, this is probably one of our most cherished and long-standing traditions, aside from sampler platters at Applebee's. So without further ado, I'm going to go ahead and give it a spin. And we landed on Limerick, which we landed on last time for Son-in-Law. Last time we had Rudy with us as a special guest, and he knocked it out of the park with a Limerick. He's not here today. We invited him, but he respectfully declined because he said that this movie, when he saw it uh, on opening night, I think in 2001, scared him so much that he actually peed his pants in the movie theater and had to walk out. And if, if he were here to refute that, he might be able to, you know, spill some more details about it, but he's not. So that's what he told us. And um, so that said, he made a great limerick last time. We're going to go ahead and we're going to dedicate these to him. You know, Rudy, we hope you have a, a dry season tonight. There are ghosts around us all the time. Most of them, they can't hurt us. Most of them don't even want to hurt us. But there are exceptions. 
it bad tonight? Oh, bad? It is my professional opinion. We should get the hell out of here. Now. I represent the estate of your Uncle Cyrus. We have an Uncle Cyrus? Cyrus recorded this message six weeks ago. He asked it to be played for you in the event of his death. Arthur, I've instructed my lawyer to deliver my last will and testament. A key? A key to what? A key to your new house. This house is the fruit of my life's work. Oh, my God. It is a one-of-a-kind home. It's marvelous, isn't it? Wow. Arthur, we've got some papers to sign in the library. After that, I would love to take you and the family around the tour of the house. This place is awesome! All right, now I know I'm dreaming. Well, your uncle was quite a collector of many things. What the hell was that? This Halloween... You're wasting your time. It's all sealed up. The only thing worse than being trapped in a house with a ghost. This house is not a house. We're in the middle of a machine. Powered by the dead. Is being trapped in a house with 13 ghosts. Maggie! What? We got company. Where? I can't see. How close is it? Close enough to hurt you. Go, go, go! Get me killed? I guarantee nothing. So I have to say that I watched that trailer this morning. Like as I was sitting at a long red light on the way to work, I watched that trailer and that might be one of my favorite trailers that we've watched on this show. Aside from the fan-made Karate Kid trailer, which wasn't real, this trailer, like the pacing of it and the the lines that they chose to use in the trailer, like the part where Matthew Lillard starts with, there are ghosts around us all the time. Like that had me hooked right from the beginning. A lot of the things that you'll find online about the movie is that is detailing mainly like the visual effects and also the uh, the sound effects. And I think what the trailer does, it's funny because I play it over here. And so I get to see all the little, the sound waves and the sound waves for that trailer is just at the very end of it. And it's kind of unsettling. And that's something that really translates when it comes into the movie. So I like the fact that pretty much that trailer lets you know what you're going to get when you watch 13 Ghosts. It's not something that like soups it up. It's not something that underplays it. So you're surprised when you go to the movie theater that trailer is delivering you the look and the feel and the sound of the movie like i did i guess i didn't pay as much attention to the sound i watched this last night i watched it the movie itself is 90 minutes long i watched it on the amc app with ads so it took me about three days to get through the actual movie because of all the ads for insurance and vacuums and stuff so i was i was kind of more entrenched with the visuals but i'm glad that you brought up the sound because now that i'm thinking back there was plenty of subversive like almost catering to the subconscious techniques that made this movie very atmospheric let's get into the poetry here limerick was the style do you want to go first i'll go first i like the fact i think you pointed out in the son-in-law episode the great thing about the wheel of poetry is that it doesn't allow us to cheat like we can't come into this with a haiku already in our back pocket that was our original iteration remember back in the day back when we were young and wide-eyed and had dreams instead of memories and just were excited about things we started just doing haikus that was great but then you know we evolved as hopefully those who survive will do and we debuted the wheel of poetry there once was a man named lillard (laughs) his career didn't get very far but the work he performed makes me feel intrigued and warmed i believe the guy should be a star mine doesn't have the the entire verse related to him but hopefully you'll you'll appreciate this kicker at the end there once was a house full of ghouls the criticos kiddos both thought it was cool but it was a trick no treat just plain sick matthew lillard's the master of drool and i say that because in the movie he plays essentially a psychic 
who can see and communicate with ghosts. There's a scene where whenever he has an intense episode where he like touches someone or touches something that's paranormal, he like goes down to the floor and has seizures and stuff like that. And there's a scene where he does that. He has this breakdown. He goes on the floor and this big, just like not a loogie, but like a saliva string just comes out of his mouth and he just rolls with it. And that reminded me of him in Scream where the same thing happened. And he also happened to be wearing a really chunky sweater I remember which was another motif of his character in this movie in the beginning and just the drool came out of his mouth I think it was at the end where he they revealed him as one of the killers spoiler alert and he was doing the whole like surprise Sydney that (laughs) whole thing and he's like oh I always had a thing for you Sid she said everybody dies but us everybody dies but us we gonna carry on and plan the sequel because let's face it baby these days you gotta have a sequel. Ah! There's just drool again. So he's like, I-, I cannot praise Matthew Lillard enough. Not just for this movie, not just for Scream. I don't know that I've ever seen a movie with him that I was like, man, he sucks and he's ruined this movie. He, uh, She's All That was the other one I was thinking of where he played the douchebag real world guy. And it was basically just like a glorified cameo, but that it was hilarious. And it was like, it was on point. It was perfect. You're absolutely right. Like I would have loved to see him become a Seth Rogen or one of those guys in that crew because he's just phenomenal, especially in this movie. It's funny that you bring up like she's all that and everything too because it's kind of that era of actors that really peaked then and then just died out, you know? So you got like Freddie Prince Jr., Sarah Michelle Gellar, Nev Campbell pretty much was only hanging around the Scream franchise. And other than that, like... She- Did you not see Skyscraper where she played The Rock's wife? Jeez. <laughs> well, she- I mean, now they're doing Scream 5. There's something to it when actors allow their bodily fluids to just fly I remember it was so intriguing and kind of shocking in the Blair Witch movie and trailer when she's sitting there and just snots falling out oh, of her nose. You know why? Because it feels like like if you were to do it in real life, it would be a very embarrassing thing. If you if you were to, we always used to call it gleeking. I don't know if that was just us or if that was a real word, but like if you were talking and you accidentally spit on someone, that was like the worst. Like that was worse than like pissing your pants in a movie theater when you saw 13 Ghosts on opening night. Like that was the worst. For For someone to ingrain that in this character and to make the choice to just like, you know what, fuck it. I'm just going to go full on kind of realistic seizure with the paranormal twist. Like, good for him. I just want to go back to the word gleeking. Would you be like, I'm sorry, I I gleeked on you? Like, how does that conversation roll? Well, if you choose to acknowledge it, um, I guess there are a couple ways you go about it. You could say, oops, gleeked or just cover your mouth and say, I'm sorry. It Depending on when you did it, like if it was in the 2002, 2001 new metal phase you could say oops gleek on a leash if it was on a friday you could say oh gleeky friday you know there are a couple ways to spin it that's not the only word though so read me the second line of your limerick again the criticos kiddos both thought it was cool the word criticos i've never heard it before that was their last name (laughs) come on man that was their last name all right did you you even watch the movie i know you got the dvd did you get did you get another like uh f train subway dvd like you did for son-in-law no on that no I did not get the DVD. This oh. movie is expensive as shit. You cannot, like, I was like, all right, it's not streaming anywhere. You know, it's kind of a movie from 2001. Most of these movies that we do are under the radar. Nobody's really thought about them for 20 to 30 years. So I'm like, I'm going to go to the exchange, get it for $1, probably. $3 is probably the max that I'm going to have to go. Mm-hmm. $13 at the record exchange. I do went like s- head first into the Walmart bin. I couldn't find it in there. Like Spro, Spro, Spro. Do you see the irony here? That's a dollar per ghost, man. Now now that we worded it like that, that's a steal. So the movie opens with probably one of the best openings. And we, we talked about good openings last time with Son-in-Law. This movie sets up the movie so, so fucking well. It's in a junkyard. It's very atmospheric. Matthew Lillard and F. Murray Abraham rolls up in this like old school Rolls Royce while there are these assumed like scientists slash mercenaries or something all setting up these speakers and traps and just some big shit's about to happen. And then he pulls Matthew Lillard out of the car and Matthew 
Lillard's having like a an episode. And again, he's wearing these like bright red pants and this chunky red turtleneck sweater. It was like he just went into Gadzooks and just ripped it right off the mannequin and and threw it on. And it's revealed that he's a, like a paranormal psychic and he, they're there to, to trap a ghost, but not like Ghostbusters trap a ghost. They're there to imprison a ghost with what's later revealed to be a sinister purpose. Now, the ghost that they're talking about there, and I didn't catch this the first couple times I watched the movie, but apparently the ghost that they caught there was like a truck driver who was uh, a serial killer. And his name, when he was alive, they called him The Breaker, which is more awesome when you watch the scene because the guys in the beginning scene don't just die like the disposable henchmen don't just die they get like snapped in half they get bent over backwards they just get uh, completely bisected and sucked into the hood of a car it's just so ridiculous but like in the best way to the point where you're like this movie is going to be just like a roller coaster of just crazy shit well i think what i want to do this episode is the thing about 13 ghosts is there's a whole lot of backstory that is not in the film that they put on like the specials and the DVDs and the internet. And so every ghost has a backstory. So instead of also being like a revival podcast for 13 ghosts, I almost want to make this a companion episode. So if you want to watch it, we're going to give you all the facts of what you need on the backstory of these ghosts. And obviously there are 13 of them. So Horace Breaker Mahoney, his nickname was Juggernaut. The Juggernaut was known in life as Horace Breaker Mahoney. Horace was born oversized and horribly disfigured, spending his childhood as an outcast. His mother abandoned him at an early age and his father put him to work in the junkyard where Horace's teenage years were spent alone, crushing and chopping up old cars. His father died and with no parent to steer him, the seven-foot-tall giant snapped. His first kill was a pair of female hitchhikers. He drove them back to the junkyard and tore them apart with his bare hands, feeding the pieces to his dogs. Many more kills followed. His M.O. was towing stranded motorists back to the yard where he would meticulously break every bone in their bodies. But his luck ran out, as it always does, the night he picked up an undercover female cop. It took over a dozen men to subdue the immense giant, three of whom lost their lives when Horace broke free of his handcuffs. But poor Horace's struggle eventually ended when five officers pumped nearly 50 rounds of ammo into him, and then another clip into his lifeless corpse, just to be sure. The Juggernaut Ghost, and here's the thing what, that's so cool about this movie, is you only get, like, flashing glimpses of the ghosts, where you have to, like, really pay attention to see what they look like. And I thought that was just awesome throughout the whole thing. The Juggernaut Ghost, like you said, he's, like, seven feet tall, just giant, scary. He's got the Nick Carter 1999 haircut, which, whatever, is a little weird. But he's in prison fatigues. He's got covered with bullet holes. Just the makeup alone in this movie, like, for the ghosts specifically, is just next level cool yeah absolutely agree what i like about the opening it reminds me of it's like a cross between my favorite nightmare in elm street where it opens in the junkyard and they're digging up freddy krueger's bones and then the second movie it kind of reminds me of jurassic park absolutely that was it sets up the nuance of the movie so well because there's this unseen threat kind of visible for microseconds at a time and then all you see is just the havoc that it can wreak and then you realize that there are 12 more that's when they introduce the characters of kalina and her like disposable husband or whatever who were the PETA of of ghost capturing like they're she says later in the movie that she's in the spirit reclamation business which like i don't know do you have is there a website for that or like a yelp page or something like if how do you how i don't i didn't know that business existed i guess is my point the spirit reclamation business. But she's there with this dude who we never see in the movie again. And she's sort of condemning F. Murray Abraham, whose character is uh, Cyrus, condemning what he's doing, trying to capture these souls and 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 use them for the nefarious purpose that we'll be privy to later. My favorite part about the beginning was when the truck pulls up squirting blood, essentially like out of the headlights. I don't know what kind of a truck that was supposed to be. Like it wasn't a fire truck. I don't even know. It wasn't like a diesel truck or anything like that. And the best part was it pulls in and it's just 
a shot of the truck, and then you hear Matthew Lillard's voice go, you brought a truck full of blood? Completely dubbed over. So you know that like in a test screening, somebody was like, what the fuck is that? But it was cool. I mean, it really was like they were baiting Jaws or like they were throwing the goat to the T-Rex kind of thing. And then the juggernaut just comes out and it just everything just goes crazy. So the next part is really what I think was one of the if not the most impressive parts of the movie and it has nothing to do with the ghosts it's the opening scene sort of the second opening scene that shows how tony shalhoub's character arthur and his family were just devastated by this tragic house fire and the way the reason it's so cool is because it's it's not but it's meant to be like a one camera shot this carousel shot around their first around their home which is you know full of love the kids are playing him and his wife are watching there's beautiful pictures flowers furniture and then it keeps moving keeps moving and then you hear a faint smoke alarm and then you hear like screaming and flames and all this kind of stuff and as the camera moves you see the apartment start to get or you see the home start to get like singed and darker and there's ashes and stuff like that and then you hear like ambulance and the fireman's like don't go back in there you can't go back in there and then it comes completely full circle and Tony Shalhoub is sitting in the same position he was when things were good but now you know that his wife was killed in the fire, their house was destroyed, and now they've fallen on hard times. And it was just like, like I remember, I remember seeing that in the theater and being like, wow, that was really cool. Like that was just a really cool way to provide really intense exposition without just some lame opening house fire scene. I do want to go back a tinge and just point out the fact that F. Murray Abraham is the lead in that opening scene and he is dead at the end of it. Like they don't give you a chance to even be like, oh, this must be his story. They stumble upon his body in the junkyard and he's got like a car door like through his chest or something like that. So he's dead. So, yeah, yeah. I, I forgot to mention that. One my favorite part about the carousel montage about uh, with the, the house burning down, of course, in these situations for atmosphere, you show all the bills that are like, you know, past due and final notice and stuff like that. There were about 15 or 20 bills and they all had the same exact past due stamp on them. And I just thought that was really funny. Like they've clearly come from different companies, but all those companies use the same blue past due stamp and just stamp the bill basically in the same spot. So small nitpick, but you know, maybe the prop guy could have gone to office max and picked out a little more variety. I don't know. So we realized that, that um, Tony Shalhoub and his family, Shannon Elizabeth, who like, I couldn't tell you a movie she was in after this or before this, except American pie. Love actually. Was she? Yeah. She was one of the hot American girls. Oh with, like, yeah. Oh yeah. And- just, uh, but as a cameo, but I mean like as a, as an actual like lead role, I was a hater. I will I will admit I was not a fan back in the day. Like she did American Pie and had the gratuitous nudity right in that. And so then like her career started taking off and I was like, is she really that talented? She kind of reminded me of like the next Elizabeth Berkeley, which, you know, do you write home about that? Um, <laughs> what a great comparison. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, guys, we're seeing a lot in Shannon Elizabeth. We think she could be the next Elizabeth Berkeley. But now revisiting visiting this movie like I was like oh I I like her she gives it all and the random fact that I learned was this is the first film from a major American studio with three Arab American leads in it Tony Shalhoub F. Murray Abraham and Shannon Elizabeth I never knew that she was an Arab American I did not know that either what was the studio it'll be in the bumper but 13 Ghosts was produced by Columbia Pictures and Dark Castle Entertainment and then it was distributed by Warner Brother Pictures okay cool so um so the house fire and now they're all falling on hard times and then they get a call and one thing that I noticed and one thing that like I don't think it was in Monk but some somewhere else Tony Shalhoub is so good at being just like flustered and exhausted There's so many times when he was just like it'll be okay we'll deal with it but like you don't believe him he's just on a wing and a prayer at that point and he's just so good at making you just feel this sympathy for his situation so that happens and then this lawyer shows up who I thought looked like if Michael McKean played 
Patrick Bateman. So this lawyer comes and says, I'm the, the, the attorney on record of your late uncle Cyrus. And of course, none of the kids knew they had an uncle Cyrus. Tony Schlue was like, yeah, I only met him like a couple times. And um, the lawyer's like, gonna have, I'm going to show you the will and testament of your late Uncle Cyrus. Now, this was one of my favorite parts of the movie because the will and testament, it's on a laptop. It's a video. The lawyer opens the laptop and right on the laptop, as if it's the wallpaper, is the complete design of the hell machine that they're going to try to summon the eye of hell with. Like, it's the exact floor plan of the spinning floor with all the symbols of all the ghosts. It's red and orange like hellfire. It's got demons and, like, horns and just, like, all kinds of devil imagery. And then he pulls up the video. So that makes me think, like, it, like, it, it, it was almost like he got caught looking at porn where he's like, oh, let me, I got to close this tab. You're not supposed to see the, the eye of hell device yet, but let me pull up Uncle Cyrus. So that was something that, that I didn't notice before, but made me laugh when I watched it. And essentially what happens is Uncle Cyrus gives this big spiel about how he never got to meet his nephew, Arthur, and he bestows upon the family this house. I have trouble reconciling with whether or not I would have been excited to live in that house. It wasn't even that it was like too nice. It was just not a house. It was like one of it was like a like a like one of those tanks that you put a beta fish in. By the time they got there and they were just like fawning over it, like this is amazing. Oh, we struck gold. I was like, nah, you know what? I'm over it. I don't think it's that sweet. They set it up nicely though. I mean, I think I'm very I'm a lover of good dialogue. I, okay. I, and this one, this movie, that kitchen scene with the family, I think is so well written and the nanny and everybody kind of like playing off each other and going back and forth. But what the scene also does, it sets up nicely that they don't have any room. They're all in a cramped apartment. Tony Shalhoub trips over a scooter and it's funny because in 2001, I was 19 years old and I thought I, I'm pretty sure that I sided with the kid like, whoa, dad, calm down. You just hit your foot. It's fine. And now that I'm an older person, I'm like, why the <laughs> hell is a scooter in the middle of the kitchen? Yeah. You know, no, like, right. he spills coffee on himself. Like I you could totally see like my progression of maturity on where I stand like in the fight. But no, so I they say like we have no room. And so the one thing that I will side with Shannon Elizabeth with when she she goes into the house is man i'd be all over that bathroom oh I would yeah be taking a bath like no tomorrow what are the what's the show called where he's like okay move that truck what's that called makeover extreme uh yeah, extreme, extreme makeover. makeover like there's always and maybe they don't air these on tv but you can find them online where the people like don't like the renovation and they're just like oh this is nice like that's kind of how I felt when I saw the house. And then the the lawyers like, "Hey, um it's out in the middle of the sticks somewhere because your uncle was big on privacy." And then they pull up to the house and it's literally 95% see-through glass. <laughs> yes. like, you know, like I mean, I get it. Nobody probably ventures around there, but privacy, I mean, apparently there's a power company nearby and, you know, bears and stuff too. So, kind of a paradox there. But when they get to the house, Matthew Lillard is there. It's an interesting reintroduction for him because he's dressed as a utility worker and we kind of didn't know what happened to him after the opening scene. He just found Cyrus's dead body and then that was that. So he's a utility worker and he's trying to get into the house as well. The lawyer seems to be suspicious and we learn later it's because the lawyer's kind of in league with nefarious plans that are going on. I've said nefarious twice in this episode. That's more than I've said it throughout the whole length of our podcast so they all go inside they're all exploring one of my favorite parts of the exploring was they go to this room where i think it was the little kid bobby goes to the room where it's like japanese samurai motif there are all these like samurai statues and then they pan up this shelf and it's all full of todd mcfarlane's spawn figures which i used to collect as a kid like they're just action figures but they i mean they were samurai some of them were samurai themed and i remember seeing those in the theater and being like oh oh that oh that's a spawn figure and just being like <laughs> <laughs> like losing my shit because I recognized it. So they get in the house and that's when things start to go to shit. It's revealed that the lawyer was secretly after a briefcase full of cash in the basement. 
which he lifted up off of this pedal that then clicked and set in motion the machine, which was called like the Beliskius device or something like that. That's what sets the rest of the plot in motion because one by one, these ghosts that were captured and put in the basement are released one by one to what we learn is uh, summon all their energies together and open the eye of hell. And what's the metaphor when the lawyer picks up the briefcase full of cash? Money is the root of all evil. Money is what starts this whole thing going down this bad path. What I really like about this whole device is it's a moving maze. But in this movie, also with the walls, it's everything that freaks you out about a funhouse. It's the clear glass walls where you're like, you can't run because you're just going to go headfirst into something. Mm -hmm. And in the same instance, now the walls are moving and you never know. Really, there's a scene where Tony Shalhoub's like, we have to get to that staircase. And it's kind of like, and it's right there on the other side of this glass wall with Latin phrasing all over it. And he's like, but how do we get over there? And meanwhile, if you don't wear your glasses, because they're wearing the special glasses in this to let them see the ghosts, that you don't know if there's a ghost in this glass hallway with you or not, or if they're just beyond the wall and that wall's going to open up and then they're going to be given access. That's what puts you on the edge of your seat when it comes to this movie. Well, the fact that it was a countdown too almost treated this movie like it was a bomb because the ghosts are released, not necessarily in like, we don't see every ghost individually released, but we see the, we see the level of danger escalating. Like they save the worst ghosts for last. So it's like a countdown almost like start, Starting with this one ghost who I think she was like the the prom queen or the dying queen or something like that. And it was just this like naked chick with a knife. And so she's the first one out. She's menacing. And then gradually we get up to the the hammer, I think was the one. The guy with all the railroad spikes in his head. The jackal, which was just like, I remember seeing that in the theater and being like, I'll probably have nightmare. That's probably the one that made Rudy P himself. And then the juggernaut who I wrote a note about the juggernaut without the haircut. He looks like Barry Carl from the band Rockapella from Carmen Sandiego. Google it, look it up. That's who he reminded me of. But anyway, so I do want to get into the backstory of all the ones that you just mentioned. So you got the angry princess. The angry princess was a young woman whose beauty became her ruin. Dana Newman was blessed with the natural looks of a goddess, but cursed with an inability to recognize it. Her vanity and insecurity was only fueled by a string of abusive boyfriends. By the time of her twenties, depression had dragged Dana into a downward spiral of self-loathing that doctors struggled to save her from. Her desperate search for perfection led to employment with a plastic surgeon, where her wage was paid in nose jobs, breast implants, and an endless array of other needless procedures. Alone in the office one night, Dana tried to perform surgery on herself in a desperate attempt to remove an unperceivable imperfection on her face. The unorthodox procedure went horribly wrong, and she was left blinded in one eye. She finally gave up on achieving perfection and mutilated herself in a bathtub until her veins ran dry. When they found her, they said that she was as beautiful in death as she was in life. Huh. So the hammer... George Markley was a happy, honest blacksmith in the early 1890s before the horrific events that transformed him into the hammer. A hard-working man named Nathan wrongfully accused Mr. Markley of stealing and threatened to run him out of their booming town. Knowing he was innocent, George stood up to Nathan and refused to move. One day, when George's wife and two children were walking home from the market, Nathan and his gang of thugs attacked them, brutally killing them. Enraged, George tracked down Nathan and his friends and beat them to a pulp with his massive blacksmith's hammer. The local townspeople captured George and dragged him back to his shop where he received a brutal form of frontier justice. Tied to a tree, nails were driven deep into his body with his own hammer. They finished the job by cutting off his most prized possession, his hand. Crudely fastened to his severed appendage was the tool of his livelihood, the hammer, readied for one last chance at vengeance. That's 
<laughs> so I love how they they included the fact that his like abusive boss's name was Nathan. I mean, yeah, like, hey, fuck you, Nathan. You sound like a dick. Like that. I don't know. He, they couldn't have just said his abusive, terrible boss. They had to give him the name Nathan. Like, I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> that struck me as comedic. His makeup was probably the best because there are parts where like you do see him probably more close up than some of the other ghosts. The railroad spikes driven through his head and through his chest and stuff are awesome. But then there are parts where he starts pulling them out and it, it mm-hmm. looks like seamless and just really, really cool. And I guess we have Nathan to thank for all that. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Nathan. And then the the fourth one that you mentioned was the Jackal. Born to a prostitute in 1887, Ryan Kuhn developed a sick appetite for women, attacking and raping strays and prostitutes in the night. He voluntarily went to Borhamwood Institute for treatment to cure this problem, but the medical practices made him much worse, causing him to go completely insane after years of solitary confinement, having his head locked in a cage after breaking out of his straitjacket and developing a hatred of humanity. When the asylum burst into flames, he chose to stay behind and perish in the fire. His ghost carries his torn straitjacket with the torn cubic head cage it is called a sign of hell's winter see now he he was my favorite and the scariest one he's actually the one that attacks shannon elizabeth and tony shalhoub i think Mm -hmm. and he's just like it's just on another level like all the other ghosts have bits of humanity to them they they look human or they you know they even like move like humans do he he struck me more as like an animal oh maybe that's why they called him the jackal duh um But but you see the cube thing around his head, which is something that like I didn't I don't know if that's real or what, but it's basically just like a it's like a Hannibal Lecter mask, but built like a Rubik's cube. I mean, I guess it would just keep him from biting people, you know, but again, it seems like a seems like a long way to go when instead you could just put like a, you know, gag on or something. But it looked cool. Those those would be the ghosts who opened Planet Hollywood. Those would be like Stallone, Schwarzenegger and Bruce Willis of ghosts. They would open the Planet Mm -hmm. Hollywood of 13 ghosts. And then the other ones are, you know, you get random shots of them. There's like the kid with the arrow through his head. There's the torso, which was just weird. Um, You want to read those stories? Sure. The kid is the firstborn son. Before he became my firstborn son, little Billy Michaels was simply a stubborn brat. His obsession with the world of cowboys and Indians took precedent over all else. Any attempt to drag Billy out of his fantasy world sent him flying into a rage. His parents thought it all a harmless phase until the day that a neighbor boy discovered a real bow and arrow in his father's closet and taunted the notorious cowboy Billy into a duel. But Billy's toy cap gun was no match for the steel-tipped arrow that took his life. His rebellious attitude and refusal to accept defeat was a perfect fit for my violent circle of angry spirits. What the Jesus. fuck? <laughs> so wait a minute. Why isn't that other kid in hell? What happened to the other kid who shot him with a fucking arrow? Like, Jesus, I didn't know that. I mean, so he, so this little kid, Billy, comes to the duel with a cap gun, and the other kid's got a fucking bow and arrow? Yeah. That you just created sympathy for the ghosts now for me. that, And I don't know if I like that because before they were just threats. Now I just feel bad for that kid. Like that kid was just like, he was like standing on the walls, standing like. Yeah, but I didn't, like, I, I, didn't think, I didn't think his friend shot him. I thought maybe he like fell onto an arrow or something or was like somehow harmed himself. I didn't know that there was another kid who murdered him. We don't get any glimpse into where that kid is these days. Like what the hell? No, nope. the torso was Jimmy the Gambler Gambino. Most people have gambled at least once in their life, but for Jimmy the Gambler Gambino, betting was his life and death. The son of a bookie, Jimmy spent his childhood days at the track instead of at school and his nights in the gambling dens of seedy bars. Eventually, Jimmy opened a booking business of his own. Unable to turn down a bet, he barely covered his payoffs. Jimmy's reputation caught the attention of made man Larry the Finger Vitello. Larry approached Jimmy to place a large bet on the long shot in a heavyweight fight. Jimmy knew the risk, but needed to uphold his reputation. So he shook hands with Larry and sealed his fate. As his fighter took a deciding blow, Jimmy fainted to the floor. When Jimmy came to, Larry had arrived to collect his winnings, but Jimmy was cleaned out. So Larry made an example out of him. 
actually several small examples. He chopped him into little pieces, wrapping them in cellophane and dumping them into the ocean. Together they formed the pieces which completed my search for the torso. We've taken a stance on the mafia on this podcast before. And, you know, we say that they've, if you research it, they've done a lot of good. People's rights and things like that. They're an underground government when your government fails you. This is probably one of the less flattering things that the mafia has done. uh, Wrapping Jimmy the Gambler Gambino, who is a gambler, in cellophane and throwing him in the ocean. I wonder why they drove all the way out to the ocean when they could have just, because this is in New York and New Jersey. Although I guess New Jersey's near the ocean ocean isn't it ocean city it's on the ocean on the ocean yeah, okay Atlanta. i was gonna say i wonder why they didn't just throw him into like the hudson river but that makes sense well we forgot one very important part and i say very important because it gives rise to the best line in the movie once the lawyer picks up his briefcase full of cash and starts the catastrophe in motion he releases the first ghost who was the beauty obsessed one with the knife he teases her on his way past her while she's still in a cage hey nice dance Then she gets out as he's trying to walk back up the stairs and she kills him. Now, she doesn't stab him with her knife. She doesn't like ghost kill him, like, you know, suck out his spirit or something like that. She somehow gets two glass panes uh, of a door to slice him symmetrically in half (laughs) to the point where this was amazing to me. Like, this was absolutely amazing. It was so well done. The, The glass door shuts on him so that it slices him in half vertically. Okay, so he's wearing the spectral glasses. So first they fall off because they've been cut. Then his tie falls mm-hmm. off because it's been cut. Then he, his eyes are still like looking around, like his eyes are looking around, his mouth is moving a little bit. And then his front half, I guess, slides down the wall to reveal the back half where you see his skull, his guts, the rest of his suit and all this. And like, I remember seeing that in the theater and just being like that because that was a completely new death scene, like never imagined it, never saw anything like it. It was very methodical. The glasses first, then the tie. Then it was like, did his wiener fall off? And then or was it the balls first? You know, what happened to the shoes? All that sort of stuff. And then later, when we're following Arthur and Maggie and Shannon Elizabeth around the house, they don't see the lawyer anymore. And she goes, did the lawyer split? And like, did you catch that? I did not. Oh my God. I've remembered that line since 2001 when I saw it, when she goes, did the lawyer split? It's so good. It's so just, just, just subtle and punny and corny and stupid, but it was perfect. It was perfect. Did you ever go to the bodies exhibit? Yep. But you could like walk through a person that was split down the middle. And so I feel like now that's something that you can do. But back in that day, the only other time, you know, I remember like with face off when they take the skin of the face off and they barely show it. But you're still so curious. Like, what do we look like, you know, underneath? Right. Well, even then you didn't see you didn't see it in face off. It was like all through like a blurry lens or mm-hmm. like, a, you know, like a forced perspective thing. Uh, other than the the opening montage, that was the first kill of the movie. So like right away, they set the bar super, super high. Right. This needs to be pointed out where the director, Steve Beck, he's only done two movies. He did this and he did ghost shit as director. But as a visual effects guy, he did The Hunt for Red October, The Abyss and Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade. Like the, wow. the visual effects is this guy's bread and butter, you know, yeah. and that it's super obvious when it comes to the lawyer's death scene. Didn't I read? read in the credits that like Robert Zemeckis and some other people like big name people were involved with this oh maybe I didn't they didn't come across my research there were some like like big names but subtly mentioned the kid disappears Bobby the little kid of course goes off on his own is riding his scooter in the basement the scooter that you hate old man Spro you meddling kids just shaking your fist at the kids with their scooters Um, Uh, pick it up just just, pick it up off the floor get off my (laughs) lawn so he gets lost and that's the first time we see a glimpse of the ghost of his mother and Arthur's wife. And we learn that she's a ghost in the house. She's one of these 13 ghosts. 
because she sort of presents herself to him. And I forget what she says, but it's something like, Bobby, go back upstairs. And then there's another ghost that's like, he's like, come play with me. Why he would want another kid to come play with him, I have no idea. The first one shot him in the fucking head. So Bobby gets lost, and then the mission becomes to find Bobby, the little kid. So Bobby goes down in the basement because of the bound woman. Bound woman's name was Susan Legros. Born with a silver spoon in her mouth, Susan had it all. Her parents were the wealthiest people in town, which made Susan the most popular girl at school. Life couldn't have been more perfect, but Susan's one flaw was how she treated men. Flirting and toying with whomever she chose, she left a long trail of broken hearts. Her friends warned she'd live to regret her ways, and they were half right. In Susan's senior year, she dated the star football player Chet Walters. The night of the senior prom, Chet caught his prom queen in another boy's arms. The next morning, the boy was found clubbed to death, and Susan was missing. Two weeks later, Susan's body was found, buried beneath the football field's 50-yard line, bound in rope and strangled to death. Arrested and put on death row, Chet's last words were, The bitch broke my heart, so I broke her neck. That jealous monster would have made a nice compliment alongside Susan. Such wretched words and behavior, but his results were quite fitting. So that's the bound woman that gets Bobby down. And then you mentioned that uh, the mom, who is titled The Withered Lover. Easiest choice had to have been The Withered Lover, considering Jean Criticos was my nephew's wife. Her burnt and tortured soul held just the magnitude of suffering I required. As a wife and mother, Jean was loving and devoted. I must say that my nephew married a wonderful and proper woman. But their happiness came to a fiery end one fateful night. After decorating the family Christmas tree, the family had snuggled together in front of a roaring fire. In the dead of the night, a still smoldering log rolled out onto the carpet, igniting it instantly. The smoke alarm sent Arthur into one of his famous panics. He rushed down the hall to save his children, assuming, of course, that his wife would head outside. Arthur soon realized he had assumed wrong. The fireman kept Jean's family from going back in after her. Poor Arthur was devastated by not saving her, but her oh-so-tragic death served my needs perfectly. Hers was the only makeup that I didn't like. To me, uh, it was very like like Harvey Two-Face. Half of her body was burned, but what what ruined it for me was the fact that like around her eye was burned, but not all the way. It looked like somebody just like slapped pieces of ham and ketchup like all over half of her body <laughs> because her eye worked perfectly. And I don't know, maybe that's like an afterlife thing. Like maybe you get like one new part when you go to the afterlife and maybe she picked an eye. I don't know. But compared to all the other ghosts, and I get that they made they they didn't want to make her look grotesque. They didn't want to make her look so off-putting that you didn't feel sympathy but it was just the part of like because it was almost like there was the ring of scarring and then there was just clean flesh and a perfectly working eye and it was like man did the fire really like was the fire really that precise <laughs> six months prior is when she died in the fire now here's something that i'm not sure if they explained in the movie or if i just came up with this theory did cyrus start the fire in their house to kill her and create the 13 ghost scenario. Hmm. He's sinister enough to where at the end, there's a part where he's saying he taught he's, he's like beating on Arthur with his cane or something. And he says like, I've been working on this machine for years. Have you ever shown that type of dedication in your life? Like he's mad at Arthur's report card or something like that. And so yeah. that makes me think like, you know, was this a plan from the beginning? Like, did he set the house on fire? Did he engineer this from the beginning? And I don't, I, like I said, I don't remember if they actually explain that in the movie but if they don't i mean he's smart enough to because he he lured arthur with his family there he he set up the abduction of kathy and bobby you know mm -hmm. so that arthur would become the 13th ghost like maybe i wouldn't put it past him i mean it's not the most evilest thing that he's done it's a lot of moving parts and a lot of pieces left to chance because like i guess how do you know that the wife would be the only one to die in the fire how do you know that all these things would unfold the way they did but i feel like that would have been a cool element you don't have a choice this time arthur you will make that leap the machine requires a ghost to be created out of an act of pure love. That's why I chose you, nephew. You and your pathetic family. Congratulations. You get to become 
the 13th ghost. Kalina, near the end of the movie, she comes in out of nowhere, which actually I remember in the theater being pretty cool. Was it Shannon Elizabeth or was it Tony Shalhoub who were being attacked by the jackal? And then all of a sudden this big silver flare flies into the screen and she comes running in like uh, like a knight on horseback and saves them all. And then you're reintroduced to her character and she has knowledge of everything that's going on here. So she sort of explains and she basically lays out the fact that Cyrus was trying to build this machine machine it can see the future it can see the past and they need the 13 ghosts to power it and so then here's the twist she reveals that there are the 12 ghosts in the house but there needs to be a 13th ghost created out of an act of pure love that's when it's sort of revealed that arthur is the only reason arthur is in the house is because he's meant to sacrifice himself to save his kids and become the 13th ghost and power the machine and that's also when we realize in a fantastic reveal I thought that Cyrus this whole time spoiler alert has been alive because all the ghosts are congregated around this machine and Tony Shalhoub has his like ecto goggles on and he's counting them one two three four he gets all the way up to 12 and then he sees what he thinks is the ghost of Cyrus and he says like 13 and then he takes the glasses off and Cyrus is still there so it's a big reveal that Cyrus is alive he's now in cahoots with this lady Kalima who <laughs> like I don't know what her what the point of her in the movie was like she was pretty disposable she shows up at the beginning and then she just she completely flips like she shows up as this like Laura Croft Tomb Raider character and then when it's revealed that Cyrus is alive and she just all all of a sudden turns into this like submissive timid like you're not mad at me are you Cyrus like what what, did I do something wrong that was really weird and then he just kills her her only purpose was to to explain the big book with the plans for the hell machine and all that so that was kind of like just like a they They probably could have done that some other way, but her death was pretty uncomfortable. Do you remember her death? This, this, whenever this type of death happens in a movie, it always gets me. Uh, She gets like squished between two of the glass panels and you, it's not super like gory. It's just kind of uncomfortable because you see her like flatten and then like her head kind of explodes. And Mm -hmm. for some reason, that's just like, I don't know. I've, I've never been good with that, but then it's the climax. They're in the room with the machine, which like I never understood was, was it in the basement? Was it in the middle of the big glass house? And yet somehow nobody saw it this whole time because this machine, it looked like a level from Sonic the Hedgehog. Like it was like just these big gears, like big, huge gears and rings that were just rotating back and forth, back and forth, back and forth. I think that it was part of the floor that kept rotating. So maybe it like rose up from the basement where it was hidden or something. Bobby was about to step on it and Tony Shalhoub took him back. He was like, no, don't touch anything. You know, like, so because it was rotating when you first got there. Your Tony Shalhoub sounds a lot like my Gary Sinise impression. <laughs> the The part we forgot is the sacrifice of Matthew Lillard. So Matthew Lillard goes with Arthur down in the basement one more time to look for Kathy and Bobby. And they do this thing where they rip one of the panels off the wall. It's got a protection spell written on it. They rip one of the glass panels off the wall and they use it like a shield. And they go down in the basement and they're walking and, you know, nothing can get to them while they're behind the shield. Well, then the juggernaut gets loose. What was his name? Horace the Breaker gets loose from the beginning. He's got eyes on Matthew Lillard because Matthew Lillard helped capture him. And so it becomes a scenario where only one of them, Arthur and Matthew Lillard, Lillard can fit behind the glass and Matthew Lillard sacrifices himself to protect Arthur. And then the juggernaut picks up Matthew Lillard. Um, I think the hammer was there too and like bashed him on the back of the head or something. But then the juggernaut picks up Matthew Lillard and (laughs) bends him around a pole. Like, (laughs) like that was just gross and insane when that happened. Yeah. And then he comes back as like a James Dean style ghost. (laughs) Why does he get to come back dressed in like J crew standing there all cool, shining his ectoglasses. And why does he still have the ectoglasses? Why does he need the ectoglasses? He's a ghost now. But he's standing there and he's sort of just like this, like, like Mr. Like Obi-Wan Kenobi figure. Like, Arthur, you got to go save your kids now. You, you know, you're the only one who can do it. And then he disappears and he like, he does all but wave bye-bye. So what happens then is, and, and I don't know how to feel about this part.
part. There are incantation spells being projected over the speakers in the house. And these are the spells that draw the ghosts toward the center of the house, toward the machine, to where they need to pool their energy and open the eye to hell. Everything is working fine (laughs) until all of a sudden you hear... And you see Rod Digga up on the the soundboard scratching and fading all the incantation spells. And like I I don't know how to feel about it. It worked, which was great, but I don't know. It was you know what, looking back, maybe it was just very two thousands that that was the way that that it happened. Because what happens then is the the ghosts are all like broken of their spell, and then they all see Cyrus and they turn on Cyrus, and then they all pick up Cyrus and crowd surf him into the middle of the machine where he gets cut into a million pieces. How did you feel about that whole thing? I think when you said it's very 2000s, because I had the same kind of problem with uh, The House on Haunted Hill. I love that as a horror movie. The person that saves them in the end is a ghost, Chris Kattan. They're about to... Allie, was it Allie Larder or Bridget Wilson? Samp- I don't. I forget the two that survived. I think Tay Diggs was one of them. But they're about to die, and then Chris Kattan is suddenly like, oh no, I'm back as a ghost. Kind of like a Matthew Lillard ghost who just he just sits back and goes yep this is happening where chris Catan goes i'm gonna save everybody with my ghost power and like pulls open the windows which then frees the guys from the house so one question going up and playing a dj She basically went up to the DJ booth and was like, this one's all for the this one's for all the ghosts in the house and just like scratch the shit out of the, the spell. And then and that broke the spell. My question to you, as you're describing the house on Haunted Hill, you said it was either Allie Larder or Bridget Wilson Sampras. And then you thought, no, it was Tay Diggs. How did you confuse those three exactly? What, it was a fe- it was a female and a male that survives in the end. I know I it was see. Tay Diggs. The way that Arthur is able to stop the machine is equal parts Indiana Jones and James Bond. These rings, the rings that are revolving and and rotating around the machine are dangerous and sharp. And they're the ones that uh, Cyrus got cut up in after they crowd surfed him up to the stage. And Arthur is able to time his jump. Oh, you know what it was? It was Sean Connery from The Rock where he goes through the furnace. Yes. <laughs> you know, that's what it was. He's just like poking the fire before he goes through. Right, right. And he's like, I, oh, I, I just hope the timing hasn't been changed in these big rings on the portal of hell. Um, so, so Arthur jumps, he times it perfectly, jumps into the middle of the portal of hell device, grabs the two kids, I'm willing to forgive that. I'm willing to forgive the physics, the dynamics, and the, the complete ridiculousness of that, all because of the movie that happened before it. That's when the house opens back up and all the ghosts just march out, I guess, into the forest. I don't know. They, it doesn't really say where they go. Definitely a sequel opportunity here, though. Yeah. Oh, totally. That would be awesome. Sequel opportunity could be, I have a great name for the sequel, could be 14 Ghosts. Think about that. Ooh. You know? So did we miss any ghost explanations? We did. We missed four. I was going to see at the end if you could tell me which four that we didn't go over. So there was the weird fat baby and the little tiny mother. I don't think that was their names in the movie. Um, no. And it's funny because they have, I'll go because you got them. You got two at least. They have the longest explanation and they weren't that big of a deal in the movie. But it's the great child and the dire mother. Just ghosts I caught had to be Harold Shelburne, the great child. His three-foot-tall mother, Margaret Shelburne, was wildly overprotective of her son, smothering and spoiling him from infancy and never stopping as he grew. Harold could barely care for himself and, as a result, remained in diapers his entire life. Mocked at every turn, they sought refuge with the traveling freak show run by a man named Jimbo. But even a life in the circus was no escape, as they were continually taunted and tormented by their own twisted kind. One night, some of the freaks kidnapped Margaret as a cruel joke. In a panic-fueled rage, Harold destroyed the entire carnival in search of his mother. When he finally found her, she had died of suffocation. Filled with hatred, Harold grabbed an axe and had his revenge on the freaks, displaying what was left of them in the carnival for every paying customer to see. When Jimbo found out what had happened, he had Harold mutilated beyond what you or I can comprehend. Well, maybe you. And you thought your family was weird. So wait a minute. So so the circus 
owner, mutilated Harold, the man with special needs in a diaper and a bib. Why did, did the ghost appear mutilated? I don't remember that. I thought he just had like kind of like a normal, but kind of like creepy looking. Yeah. It it says his ghost appears as Harold did in life. Oh, okay. All right. Mutilated. The dire mother. Margaret Shelburne, the dire mother was a shy woman who could never stand up for herself, partly because she rose to only a mere three feet in height. Since childhood, she was stared at for her pint size. Her own mother would even sometimes dress her like a doll. Margaret didn't care, as long as she found some perverse form of acceptance. A carnival barker named Jimbo put her on display in his freak show. Life was horrible being an attraction for people to gawk at. One night, while sweeping up a donkey pen, she was raped by the tall man. She spawned a beastly offspring of her own. Oh, she loved her dear son, Harold, more than life itself, never letting him out of her sight. The circus workers teased and tormented them relentlessly, a conflict that played itself out with bloody resolve that left nearly the entire circus free of life, including poor Margaret and Harold. Well, as they say, there's no business like show business. Okay, so that's two down. So we have two left. Wait. So there was the there was the the James Dean looking ghost with the baseball bat. The Torn Prince was a boy born in 1940 by the name of Royce Clayton. At 17, Royce was a star slugger on his baseball team. Every college in the country courted him, all offering first class tickets out of his miserable small town life. But fate threw Royce a curveball in the form of a local greaser who challenged him to a drag. Royce held his own for the first half mile, then suddenly lost control of his little sweetheart. The hot rod flipped three times before bursting into flames. His peers watched in horror as the fire engulfed their fallen hero. Needless to say, he never escaped his small town life. His remains still buried in a small plot overlooking his beloved ball field. Mm, that one's okay. Not great. And then the last one was, I don't know what the ghost was called, but it was a, an old woman in a stockade. Perfect. Miss Isabella Smith was my choice for The Pilgrimess. Her story began in 1675 when the orphaned Isabella journeyed from England in the hope of finding a comfortable home in a quaint New England town. But problems began soon after she arrived. The tight-knit townsfolk didn't trust outsiders. When their livestock started to die mysteriously, the town's preacher accused Isabella of witchcraft. She denied the claim, but the town quickly turned against her. As more livestock fell ill, the preacher acquired a mysterious illness. The town rallied into a frenzy, cornering Isabella in a farmhouse which they lit on fire. But moments later, Isabella miraculously crawled out, still alive, and without a single burn upon her skin. The astounded townsfolk sentenced her to a slow death in the stocks. There she stayed for weeks while children stoned her, women cursed her, and men spat on her. The humiliation proved worse than the pain. Finally, Isabella succumbed to starvation. Whether or not she was a witch, I can't say, but her powerful anguish served mine. Interesting. So she survived the fire, and they thought she was a witch because of that. Is that right? Yeah. Yeah, that's why they burned them, right, at the stake, to because if they survived, they were witches. If they died, they were innocent. Same with, like, throwing them in a river. Is that if what? If they floated. I don't think I ever knew yeah, that. Yeah, if they floated. They threw the women into a river because if they float, they're witches. And if they drown, then they are innocent and they all drown. Like they never found a witch. What if they float and then drown? Or what if they drown and then their body floats? I'm sure I'm sure the bastards back in the day like did something about that. (laughs) Do you think there were a few pilgrims or Puritans or whatever who were like, damn, we fucked up. So turn so bad news guys, turns out she wasn't a witch. You had to like after every burning, like they all die, you know, like I don't know I don't I mean I don't know the rules. I don't know the specific rules for if you float, you're a witch, if you drown, you're not a witch, but I imagine there was a lot of uh back and forth between, you know, someone who witnessed a witch drowning and then floating up to the surface because the body's filled with gas and such. Whatever. All the knowledge I have about dead bodies floating is from bad boys too. So take that with a grain of salt. So anyway, we get a happily ever after. And then one of my favorite things about movies from the 90s and 2000s is when one of the people in the movies 
raps the credits. And sure enough, Rod Digger rapped the credits song. I don't think it was exactly one of those songs where it like tells you the plot of the movie while she's rapping. Like Ghostbusters 2 is a good one where Bobby Brown, who has a cameo in the movie, rapped it. And he's like, yo, Vigo came up and he tried to kill the Ghostbusters or whatever. And they just right. like rap the entire plot of the movie. But this was a great way to seal it. She had the last line of the movie, and I don't remember what it was, but it was something about, you know, like, I quit. I'm not being your maid anymore. Cut to her rapping this badass theme song. So that's 13 Ghosts. That is. We always do reviews, right? So Rudy gave his. This was the last horror movie Rudy's ever seen in the theater, and it scared the shit out of him. Scared the piss out of him. Scared the piss out of him. And then we almost got our first female co-host today, but it's funny that I brought up all your big words that you had at the beginning, and one of them wasn't even a word. It was a name, because she said that she was intimidated to come on the show, which anybody listening, if you want to come on the show, we are not intimidating folks. We treat everybody... Maybe not Rudy, but we treat everybody (laughs) with certain respect. So this was her review, though. She texted it to me. We'll call her Texas. It was a ghost movie that didn't scare the crap out of me, mainly. So much that I bought the DVD. But in the end, it's like a non-cartoon of Casper. I like the different ghosts and their stories. The buildup when each ghost is released builds that tension. The reviews from critics that I read, and I didn't write any down, were basically, I think the score on IMDb was like 5.6, which is pretty middle of the road and right in our wheel house and i think again it was a movie that like critics liked or hated a lot of them i think did praise that opening scene with the fire and the carousel shot but for the most part it was lost in 2001 like so many of the you know like the movies that we've talked about from the late 90s and early 2000s were and it's a shame because especially with halloween coming up and this this episode will be released halloween weekend it's a great watch yeah well and like the movies that we do it's got a 16 percent on rotten tomatoes really percent but the Google users are at 89%, okay. which is kind of where we go. Like the critics will pan something and critics, you have to understand that critics watch movie after movie after movie after movie. It's the same thing with like Polly Shore. Like they were done with Polly Shore because they just watched a bunch of Polly Shore before they went to see him. Mm-hmm. And with when it came to 13 Ghosts, like we brought up so many examples of The House on Haunted Hill, The Haunting, 13, you know, like they were kind of like, oh, this is just like something else that I just watched, which makes sense at the time. But now that it's almost 20 years later, go back and revisit this movie and you'll realize that maybe it was lost in the crowd at the time. But this movie is great now. And like we this might become our longest episode because there's so much to unpack with it. Wow, you brought in our old catchphrase. There's a lot to unpack with this one. I want to bring that back. (laughs) I want to bring that back. Um, I like that. So yeah, 13 Ghosts. I think, I I mean, I I picked this one and I was excited when it popped into my head because it was a quintessential, perfect selection for Second Chance Cinema. And I think that you would enjoy watching it. Even if you're a horror snob, which I know, you know, some people take their horror very seriously. This is the perfect movie to blur the lines between just a good time and like a really, really just methodical, meticulously done horror movie. There's some big words for you. I don't, I can't explain Rudy, but what Texas said, like, this is a movie where if you start dating somebody and they're like, I can't do horror, I get too scared, I get too freaked out, start them with this movie. I've always kind of done Scream in the same way because it's got the comedy to it, mm. but this movie would be great because it does have the gore. You do see the lawyer's brains, you know, like it has people being broken in half. It has boobs, like the good Friday the 13th movies, mm-hmm. but the but it's also very just kind of it's like a chill. Okay. It's got the the scary images, but they don't like the music is always going. It doesn't. There's really very little jump scares. And I think this is a movie that you can you can kind of test the waters. If you start if you're friends or dating somebody that can't handle horror, be like, let's just watch 13 Ghosts because it's October. Fair can you put down Hocus Pocus for a second and watch 13 Ghosts? <laughs> can we ditch Hocus Pocus and watch 13 Ghosts? I like that. All right. Well, this has been another episode of Second Chance Cinema. You can follow us on Instagram at 2ND Chance Cinema, or you can follow us on Twitter at MC and Spro. Spro, you've got the Facebook page up. How can they find us on Facebook? I just search Second Chance Cinema. You should be able to find us. It's got our, our white and black logo. Black and white. White and black. Whatever. Give us a follow, download the episodes, tell your friends, and this Halloween, beware of ghosts. If it for me, I'm on the first 
any shit. I've had it. This was not in the job description. I quit! <laughs> Let's do it. Thirteen Ghosts was produced by Columbia Pictures and Dark Castle Entertainment. It was distributed by Warner Brothers Pictures. Second Chance Cinema is a fan of the film and urges you to check it out. Closing credits music is Rod Digger. Thank you for listening to this episode of Second Chance Cinema. If you have any comments, questions, corrections, or would like to recommend a movie for a future show, you can reach us at secondchancecinema at gmail.com. To help our little show out, please tell your friends about us. Leave a review wherever you listen. Be sure to subscribe and download each episode you listen to as those simple steps makes us much more visible in the universe which makes these fine secret cinematic masterpieces more visible. And isn't that really the whole point? Now go on and have a beautiful day, you wonderful person, you. And if you are listening to this on Halloween 2020, I bet you can assume that things are gonna get crazy. Happy Halloween. Mirror, mirror, on the wall. Who won't survive? Who'll be next to fall? It might be today, it might be tomorrow. So until I get the call, I'm gonna say I did it all. Mirror, mirror, on the wall. Who won't survive? Who'll be next to fall? It might be today.